Hello and welcome to the Intersection of Things, a podcast about technology and how it's changing our lives from an intersectional feminist perspective. I am one half of the pod, Marianella, and I'm the other half, Ruth. Hi, Ruth. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you doing? Long time no record. It's been strange times, to say the least, but we're here. Yeah, we took a little bit of a COVID break, as many things did, but I'm really excited to be back and recording and making the podcast again. Yeah, absolutely. I think during the wait, we were still uh, working on the pod. And I think one thing that we had very clear was that we wanted to make something, record something that we felt I don't know, could give a little bit of, yes, a break without being complete escapism. Is that the word? Yeah. Um, So yeah, we've been working on things and we bring you now a new episode in hopes that it will give you a little bit of a break. Yeah. So what are we talking about this week, Ruth? So our topic is ritual. Ritual. That's kind of a, a lot. Why ritual? What's up? Well, we were inspired by a few different things. So there's a book that's recently come out called The Power of Ritual by Casper to Kyle, which we've both read and we'll be talking about in a little bit. We also enjoyed a podcast called By the Book, which we would recommend and shout out to. And it's a podcast that's talking about reading self-help books and experimenting with living your life by those guidance and then kind of investigating kind of with a lot of intellectual rigor, what the impact of that is and really looking at those books. And then I think like the other big thing is just like rituals in lockdown, in COVID, and how many different ones have had to emerge to help us cope. The rituals that were existing practices that have had to change, like grieving practices and rituals and kind of thinking about rituals as a form of care which is also something really important right now yeah Uh, before we go forward i want to give a shout out to my friend ricardo who recommended one particular episode of the by the book podcast which is the one that we're going to put in the footnotes i think the one with professor trish travis who talks about all the history of self-help and i really recommend after you listen to this episode i really recommend you cue that other one because it's it's really good Uh, So shout out to my friend for recommending. Yeah, thanks to them, because I really enjoyed listening to it from your recommendation, from their recommendation. Yeah, it's a chain reaction. Cool. But yes, it's important. I I like that you mentioned the link between ritual and and the current times and how uh, as a society or as cultures and groups, we're finding new ways to gather, new ways to find soothing, I don't know, routines, soothing practices to, I don't know, keep going. And uh, so let's look at that and how it intersects with the internet yeah and tech and all of the above yeah like right from the start when i've been looking into ritual and reading a few pieces just that are like about the concept there's a lot that anthropologists say that ritual is important to give us community and control and structure and it was interesting talking about about the idea of control when everything else is in chaos there's a thing about what makes you feel like this thing is constant and firm and sometimes you have to kind of create those things that can then feel like constants in your life Mm -hmm. so to start just very quickly how would we like define ritual like what is the difference between ritual and routine yeah that's interesting like in the book the power of ritual casper calls it like a practice with intention and i guess i would say like it has to have a kind of purpose for yourself or this is really tricky because I want to say something to do with like your your spirit but I don't really I overly believe in that concept that's more than just 
like a function. There has to be something else that to do with like personal growth or your feelings that come with it. But it's interesting. I'm still not quite sure how you can draw a straight line between those things. I'm sure there are like bits where they blur. What do you think? Well, um, yeah, the book did mention this and other people have also made the the comment of like ritual is a mix of repetition i think you mentioned uh, intention and also like meaning making yeah so so i think it's it's the difference between brushing your teeth that also has intent to keep your your dental health healthy but also the meaning making behind it and um i also i mean the big elephant in the room is that ritual is usually associated with religion right but i've also especially lately in, in I mean by lately I mean the last decade or so I've encountered ritual also coming from the practice of like anti-anxiety stuff the repetitive intentional practice that's like meant to calm soothe give you some sort of like grounding <laughs> buzzwords grounding in order to like tackle problems whether you know manufactured by your brain which is a big thing or actually society problems right you make me think that maybe there's just something in the naming of it you know if you do something and you call it a ritual and then you treat it with a level of seriousness it can become one in a different way than if you're just carrying out something you do every morning putting the toast in the toaster but there's that is that kind of choice of saying like this is my ritual this is something that i find value and meaning in i mean and the the listener might go like okay so how does this relate to like tech and everything else that you're talking about one thing that we forgot to mention at the beginning is that the author of this book is also quite famous for running or co-running the uh, very famous podcast the uh, harry potter and the sacred text so we've probably have already mentioned at least a pod probably in the fandom episode so yeah it has connections to like Fan communities, I mean, the rituals of fandom are fascinating. Connections to online communities, it has connections to non-geographically bound movements and gatherings. So we want to explore a little bit about that in this episode as well. I think I would also say, it's all those ways in which technology tries to commodify spirituality and turns them various like meditation practices into apps. Yeah. So is there anything that you really liked about the book in this context? Um, I think the things that I really liked were the stuff that links into the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text podcast, which is the sacred reading practice, which is very much like reading to get meaning from something in your life. And there was one bit that talked about like stopping when you find a meaning, like find something that impacts your life and then like pausing there and then like really dwelling and thinking on that particular point. And mm -hmm. I thought that that idea of just stop and think when something has an impact on you and not kind of rushing to go to the next bit. I actually wanted to kind of take that to Twitter and be like, you know, I scroll through Twitter until I find something that has meaning and I can learn from and then like just stop don't keep scrolling like now think about that thing read the article and run with that but don't keep going and looking for the next thing yeah and also a lot of the stuff about rest as a responsibility to others I thought was an interesting counter to perhaps my own instinct to see resting as sort of selfish um, or my just general thing that I'm very bad at doing nothing and always want to be doing something 
and to kind of see resting as a responsibility and that you take care of yourself so that you can also help and take care of others. I thought those were really interesting points. How about you? Yeah, I also like the sacred... Is the term that they use sacred reading? Mm-hmm. I like the, that approach. I It's interesting. I was always fascinated to see that this book repackages a lot of things and puts the label of ritual and sacred and like almost this little layer of mysticism to them. Because for me, what how they describe sacred reading was also how we did close readings in school in general. But yeah, so it was interesting just to see the repackaging of certain things. Which, I mean, the book doesn't shy away from saying that. Like, you are already doing a lot of these. And their thesis is to, like, reconsider them under the lens of the sacred. But... I am not always convinced about that, but I am intrigued by, again, the repackaging of things like rest as, yes, it's good nourishing and a challenge to like the capitalist structures that demand of you that you go, 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 go. But like, I don't know, it, it's weird to re- repackage this under the sacred instead of looking at them or not instead, but like in parallel to look at them as reactions to us trying to survive a system that's meant to wear us down and treat us as disposable. Yeah, I think like in part it's it's kind of saying that like for a lot of people who don't practice a religion there's this gap there's like the loss of the sacred ritual and saying can we fill it with these other things and I've had that same thought in the past because I used to go to church and now I don't and there are some things that I think it's always surprising what I miss, but like I I do miss communion, for instance, um, because I think that I always felt like it was a connection to history and to a sense that people had like done that same thing many times before, and that actually it wasn't I don't know group singing, although some people really love that um, that I miss, but those kind of like repetitions, and there are other things that I've also thought were really valuable. I love the concept of godparents as a ceremony of bringing your friends into your family officially and I really want a secular version of that because I love the the you know friends are my family as we've spoken about in other episodes so I can kind of see it as responding to that gap and saying like you don't have to go to church for those things you can find it in other places that being said you can't just find something random and think that this can be my new church and that it won't have any of the problems that church also has around dogma and fanaticism and leadership and exclusion. Yeah, I think one of the main arguments of the book was that just because traditional institutions are falling out of, what would that be, influence, out of practice, out of uh, the church is not as important in our lives as it used to be. And by our, I just mean like society, like Western society, as it used to be. And by church, I mean like Christian kind. Yeah. Just because those institutions have fallen out of grace, no pun intended, (laughs) doesn't mean that the need that those uh, institutions attempted to fulfill has gone away and it doesn't mean says the book that we are not fulfilling those needs in other ways i think one of my main criticisms about the book is that the examples that they give arguing like the the places through which we fulfill those needs um the examples that they use are quite problematic and it was weird to see them put uh, in parallel or in the context of this is taking the role that church did Um, For example, they talk a lot about CrossFit, they talk a lot about uh, SoulCycle, but they fail to talk and devote anything to like Black Lives Matter, other, um, uh, I don't know more, like any other community-based movements that 
are providing basically all of the things that the book argues places like, like CrossFit and SoulCycle are providing, which is a sense of identity, a sense of community, a sense of purpose, a sense or a place to keep yourself accountable, a place to not only share values, but share, shape the values that, that you're going to live by. Yeah, and I, I found it quite jarring to see that the examples used were, were almost limited to places where you have to pay a subscription to go. So uh, just to kind of rescue what you were mentioning earlier is like a way of commodifying spirituality and repackaging it into a way where we can consume it and consume it almost divorced from history and thus divorced from the social implications that come uh, as a product of history, like white supremacy, yeah. gender binary, all of those things. Anyways, but I've been rambling. What do you think to this, Ruth? The commodification of things. Why is Soul, Cy Soul Cycle there and not Black Lives Matter? Yeah, I mean, just in case you aren't aware of Soul Cycle as a listener, I mean, I've never been, so I was reading the description of it. You go on a stationary bike in a room with candles being lit and like darkness, loud music, and then someone says inspiring phrases at you and you all like cycle at the same pace together. And there's this bit where, so in this experience, it gets very emotional. It says that people often cry and then says nothing says community like people crying together. And for me, this whole section was very like red flags around the concept of what a community is. Because again, to like bring autobiographical experiences into here, I have been to evangelical spaces, which are very, very good at whipping people up into emotions and crying. And that's not genuine. It's not real. It's very easy, actually. Everything that's just described, using music and lighting and words to make people feel feelings, they're, they're not special. Like lots of people can use those things. And that doesn't mean they're always bad. I love going to a music concert and I think fundamentally that is a really similar experience of yeah. feeling at one with a whole crowd of people and you all love this band and you're all singing along and that's so great but that doesn't mean those people are a genuine community unless you do other stuff together and mm -hmm. like you care for one another and it doesn't mean there aren't risks. We've talked about in the Rockstars episode I think that you can't just immediately place all of these feelings and go like well this is a new version of this that's going to be okay for me because it doesn't come with a scripture but actually it's just as much of a risk that that person is can be manipulative and yeah on top of all of that you have to ask why because soul cycle is a business therefore everything that's making you feel this sense of connection and power and togetherness is also part of making money yep. like i mean you know i go to a sports class too and i love it and i think it is a community so that's not to say you can't have value in something you spend money on mm -hmm. um but like my class that i go to has a lot of other things that are involved like socials and uh, an online website where we talk to one another and tea break where people catch up there's all these other things that are involved it's i don't think it's the crying that makes the community yeah the whole like the branding of it it's the business aspect yeah the commodification of spirituality of belonging it didn't sit well with me and uh, and I just also to recognize that the book does have a throwaway phrase here and there to kind of acknowledge that yeah cults and weird personalities can take advantage of people and then goes back to like but let's take what 
what works for us from this. And that practice of looking at the world as your oyster and picking and choosing what works for you and throwing away history, um, for me, as a non-white person, just reads as, as a very privileged point of view to have the privilege to choose a history and actually say, eh, you know, this, this church has its problems, but I really like this aspect. Just that is such a... I think it's an acting of, uh, yes, white supremacy in that you get to rewrite history to suit what you need right now and to also avoid responsibility, the, the historical responsibility that comes with that. Like one, one cannot talk about the Catholic Church without talking about priests who rape kids. And it's just so weird to all of a sudden just be like, I like this, but not that. Like, people can have that, but just to put it in a book as a thesis and as a, I don't know, a main element of, I did not, that did not sit well with me. I don't know what you think, but it reminds me also of like what that uh, book, The War on Queers in Canada, referred to as a social organization of forgetting, which was key. And by that, they mean creating cultures that forget their history so the current people can manipulate and tell you the stories that suit the, the present needs of that ruling class. And, I don't know, side note, when they were talking about Soul Cycle in that book, uh, randomly they mentioned like this awesome instructor called Angela Davis, and I was like, what? Angela Davis? And there was not even a line, not even a word, acknowledging <laughs> that a reader can potentially be taken out of the reading space looking at that name just being like, Angela Davis? Black active? teach a soul cycle i got lost on the angela davis thing actually i was just busy being like it's so weird of all the all the names yeah i i agree that this thing of like you can't treat all of these religions and everything as just like something to pick and choose from not everything is open to everyone it reminds me actually of a lot of what people have been saying around covid and why some people feel like they're being oppressed by being asked to stay inside or is wear like, masks or wear masks that it's this idea of the starting point is that you're owed everything and then having something not be accessible to you feels like an attack when in fact you have to accept that from the starting point not everything is for you you can't have everything and i think it's something some people including myself have had to have had to learn that like maybe that's how we're taught or like as white people we're socialized to this idea that we have you know and a right to everything, but I think it should have been very clear that that isn't the case, and you don't get to kind of just drop into another culture without real invitation, I think. It's the whole spiritual tourism thing, right? The TLDR is like, the book does present certain novel articulations of things by reframing current practices into the or through the lens of spirituality I also like the whole like take a break from tech we've also already mentioned how apps are designed to keep you in the app and this book argues that rest also includes rest from things that you don't even think are work such as social media so I really I like that but yeah overall I thought it lacked not only its rooting in history but also honoring every tradition that the book picks and chooses to assemble its its new proposition. So so yeah, uh, reminded me a little bit of that self help interview that that we mentioned at the very beginning. This is this is not the only book obviously that does this, but it follows a trend in self help of the uh, commodification of spirituality and kind of filling in that 
need in the North American or Western tradition of like this is how you better yourself and it's taking the the responsibility of social ailments have as a site of action the self and the inner self and the mind instead of systemic problems having to be addressed as systemic or with systemic approaches or like grand approaches so how does this relate to tech like we've seen apps like headspace and just to give a bit of a, an example there are some employers that would give you access to free well not free because you're paying benefits or anything but employers that give you access to uh, mental health apps but i think it was laurie penny who said an employer would rather pay for individual therapy rather than invest in changing their workplace culture that made it necessary that the employees are going to therapy so uh, let's link this back to tech and be like, how is tech facilitating this commodification of ritual? Yeah, I think Headspace is an interesting example because my workplace literally does that. We have a, everyone can use Headspace. I'm sure it's great and I have nothing against people finding something that's useful to them. But if you look at Headspace's website and look at what it says for corporates, it advertises it 100% on this will help teamwork. This will help productivity. Like mm. it isn't for you. Like there's the there's that version of the advertising that's for the individual, and then there's a version of the advertising that is look at how you can get more out of your employees. And right. I read and have discovered that they also provide an aggregate piece of information of the data of what kinds of meditation employees are using. So how can something that should be a personal practice? be mediated then through another party that is then part of you know feeding that into your employer to me that doesn't sound peaceful like i don't think i could enter a, a zone of calm whilst also being aware that this data is being gathered and used and everything yeah yeah there are a ton of meditation and uh, mental health apps there's also one that's um mentioned at the end of the book the book that we've been talking about What's what's the name? Is it the We Croak? Yeah. Oh my you god! I could this. not believe that. I was just like, what? I had to go and find. Um, I found another article about it, so I will also link to that in the footnotes, because I just was like, who is this for? Hold on, like record scratch, go back. What is this? This is an app. It's not very complicated. It's in fact like a basic notification program that sends you a message five times a day reminding you that you will die. Fascinating. What the fuck? Yeah, so apparently it's inspired by a traditional Buddhist meditation practice. A kind of like memento mori, the kind of thinking about how you will die and that you will die reminds you to have value and meaning in life and everything that is around you. And, and the people who programmed this app did take some phrases from like Buddhist meditation to include in this. But mm -hmm. also some of them are just like, don't forget you will die. And I'm just like, the, the, the level of this question for me is like, who is this for? Because if you are someone who like me has anxiety or like many other people feels a lot of risk or experiences genuine real like danger in your life, like, yeah. You only need to have some kind of five times a day remember that you will die if that isn't a concern for you. Me going to the grocery shop and having like a white cashier woman say like randomly like, oh, I am surprised we haven't had any robberies with all of these people in masks while looking at me. True story. I would have been like, oh, thank you. This is a reminder of my mortality and how like threatening I am. 
I do not need an app to remind me you might die. The world is good enough for that already. On top of that, it was just a fascinating example of laziness, you know? Oh, I could take this practice where I set aside time every day to take this meditation seriously. Or, how can I make this easy for me? I oh, know, I'll just have alerts on my phone that do it for me. Mm-hmm. Like, that to me is also an example of the commodification, is you've turned something thoughtful into something easy, and now you feel like you're achieving it. But if you're yeah. not actually really taking it seriously, you're you're just kind of ticking off the idea that you're doing some meditation, which confuses me because if it's for yourself, who are you trying to impress? And at the same time, collects data. Like You don't need an app for that. If you really need your phone, just set yourself alarms. Like, I don't know. It's And again, just it was very strange to, to have that app included in the book because I'm like... It did make me laugh a little bit, though. Like, I mean, I'm laughing at it, but <laughs> I'm just like... Of all the weird things, like, it feels like Silicon Valley you know, still continues to surprise me. Yeah, I mean, and it's kind of the natural progression of capitalism to, as you have mentioned before, to like create a problem and then sell the solution, right? That's like the biggest capitalist scam that's everywhere. But the interesting thing is like, you've mentioned Silicon Valley, influencers also take part of this. I mean, the whole Instagram culture, hashtag blessed, um, hashtag self-care kind of takes this ritual gratitude um practice into tech and into the social space and still i would argue like still using it to profit right there's brands like influencer brands and just brands brands built on vulnerability the hashtag blessed that sometimes feel more like a hashtag brag and self-care that's almost like it has i don't know what do you think of this it has this weird like confession like i know this spa treatment was two hundred dollars but hashtag self-care. So there's some guilt, but you still want to show it off. So you, it's this meta commentary of like, I'm showing you the picture, but I'm also very aware that this is a lot, but I'm justifying it with self-care because I mm. deserve it. And mental health is important. And this whole thing of like justifying capitalist decisions through the mental health lens, it's the whole like remember have you heard the phrase uh, retail therapy mm. the whole idea of like you can pay a couple hundred dollars to go to therapy or just buy new i don't know shoes or jewelry or whatever so yeah and a lot of it's also gendered right like it happens with the normative masculinity guys like there's a reason why um how do they call it midlife crisis and being correlated with ferraris and sports cars this whole like redoing of your life through commodities but like it's also gendered in women with the whole like the whole retail therapy is usually associated with um, stereotypical normative women etc so i keep on rambling ruth what yeah. do you think well you know i've been saying lately that if we agree there's no ethical production under capitalism then logically there's also no ethical consumption under capitalism so i think that it can be really hard for people who think that and have like progressive ideas and also live in our capitalist society and want to have nice things to feel kind of torn between those two ideas and i think that happens like all the time like it's really hard not to feel like you're being tricked by capitalism, you know? Yeah. Like I was saying about wanting to feel productive at the weekends, is the fact that 
I want to spend loads of time reading and learning something that is about my own personal growth or is it the capitalist voice saying you should always be producing and furthering your own value for the system like it's really hard I think to separate out those different ideas and we just have to kind of do the best we can and I think self-care is definitely one of those things that is genuinely really valuable like we do have to look after ourselves and actually this reminds me obviously there's this Audrey Lord's quote about that right the caring for myself is not self-indulgence it's self-preservation it's an that's an act of political warfare and I think that when we're kind of critiquing the self-care stuff we're not trying to undermine that point that self-care is radical because I actually think it is still radical when the world doesn't want you to survive and doesn't want certain types of people to flourish and to have joy but that corporations and capitalists are constantly playing with that idea like they see the ideas on the left and then take them as we were saying with the apps like let's take those ideas and commodify it and undermine the politics of it so it's really hard to kind of resist that constant thing that we experience which is having our ideas commodified back to us yeah and and just a point on, on that like it's very important to point out just to not fall into the the trap when Audre Lord says that she's also saying it as a black woman right and yeah. it's it's very important to see how often like Instagram all of us uh, businesses hey Lululemon how are you businesses take phrases that have or were said under a very specific context talking about very specific people and experiences like for a black woman to say that self-care is an act of self like self-preservation is an, an act of revolution it comes with a lot of historical and current political and social baggage it's not the same as like a white sally who's cis straight has some means to suddenly be like yolo self-care this is the revolution like it's very important for us to go back and, and realize that some of these phrases sound very beautiful and can be printed on a tote bag but some of those phrases are not for us and yeah and not only not for us but like they it's, it's they're not about us that's another thing like yes of course they might be for us if we derive meaning from it but they're not about us you're absolutely right like when we talk about um, self-care and recovery from exhaustion like there's a kind of exhaustion that I'll never have you know that that's that kind of like generational trauma of white supremacy you know I can't have that same kind of care that is needed that other communities and other people need to recover from that like one of the other people that I was reading about for this was um, someone called Trisha Hersey mm-hmm. Um who does a thing called nap ministry and i was reading a lot of stuff on her website it was really interesting and she talks about how um she's been studying like the science of sleep and has this whole practice and art and inspiration around rest but says that that is drawn from like afrofuturism from reparations theory from liberation theology like all of these other things um that it's about like a radical tool for recovery from white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism. And I was I was reading it, it's like really interesting how grounded that all is in theory and in history. Um, mm-hmm. And it's very clear 
that 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 is not for me obviously um and that that is really valuable for the people that it's catered for i mean do engage and do learn and notice certain things like let's look at the opposite of it the whole like you know work hard for your dreams culture that elon musk was sleeping under his desk when he founded paypal all of these myths of the not the tortured genius but the burnt out creator that made it big and became a billionaire uh jeff bezos also had memes sometimes like this is where amazon started in a garage and people are like yeah with an investment of like a quarter million dollars from his parents anyways so this myth of the burnout of the hashtag hustle which again is a racialized term when you look at it that also kind of gets appropriated by everyone it tells you about a certain culture that celebrates the opposite of self-care which is burn to the ground to pursue your dreams instead of even questioning like why do you have to give up years of your life in health in order to have a way to put bread on the table it's just a way to say don't let's not just avoid uh, engaging with certain texts and theories uh, let's just not commodify them but also yeah. learn from them. Have we just slammed ritual and stuff like that? Is this all a capitalism scheme to get you oppressed? No, I don't think it is at all. You know, when I was preparing for this and reading the book, I made a list of like all the things that I do that I think of as being rituals, and I included making this podcast and like my Sunday reading and research and my like mental health journey and my annual visit to see the wildlife photographer of the year exhibition i'll put that mm -hmm. down every year i go see these beautiful photographs of animals and i've been going for years and years and i love it and oh. comic-con and like so many things i think of all of these as being rituals like certain political like donations like there's a charity that every christmas i have like my christmas budget and whatever is left i always give to um, medical aid for palestine and those practices to me are all really valuable and personal and they're not drawn from a religion but they are things that are connection with friends and with practices that i believe in so yeah i think that there is a huge value in ritual yeah i agree i think yes ritual and community and doing things remember last episode the one on curiosity we said sometimes it's not the movies that you watch it's who you watch them with yeah. um and it was like how do we process the world together and i think making community and having practices that are consistent that happen they soothe the the mind soothe the heart too and it's not just routine you create new meaning and i think that meaning is exponentially better when you do it with other people and very slowly we're still going back and talking about those things that this book and many others at, at its heart it just they have those things of like it's people gathering creating meaning looking after one another yes holding each other accountable and just being together like processing the world together and i think that's incredibly valuable and it's because it's so valuable and it feels like it adds so much in a positive way it's also it comes with its um know your risks and know how people might take advantage of this that disclaimer always has to be attached to all the praises that i just sang at the beginning yeah i was just thinking that that we have managed to get so much out of this and we still didn't haven't talked about all the new rituals of 
COVID and grieving and clapping. We didn't talk about the clapping ritual. Oh my god, um, yeah. That's a whole thing. Well, it happens in your city. It happens in mine. Uh, I don't know. It's different times, right? But like, mine is at 7 p.m. Mine's at 8 p.m. on a Thursday. Oh, only on a Thursday. Well, for us, it was like 7 p.m. every day. Uh, oh, wow. More dedicated. Out. Yeah. And I think it's falling out of uh, practice. There is, I've heard that up until a couple of weeks, there's still some people, depending on where you are in the city. Um, I guess if you live closer to a hospital or if you're, depending on your neighborhood. But like, I've, I have not heard much cheering for a bit now, but I know it's still happening. Mind you, I don't think I've ever really clapped maybe once or twice when i was with with friends um socially distanced in the backyard but but i always kind of appreciated the aspect of a lot of people in a city stopping at the same time to clap and thank all the doctors that are putting you know their lives out there the the nurses all the medical professionals the people in in supermarkets that are exposing themselves potentially to be there and, and give us food transportation workers that are still moving people who need to go to work and that have been infected like just to take a moment for me that like that that act of saying thank you was both something very special to hear and also i think puts communications person had from a social perspective it was a really good reminder for everyone to be like this is still going wash your hands keep your distance wear a mask Mm. Right, it's a daily reminder that just because you're bored, the virus isn't. So <laughs> this thing is is gonna keep going. And so I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I see a lot of health professionals on social media saying that it's pointless because if you're not going to provide more support for health workers, like i.e., mm -hmm. the government is not doing what's being asked, then they can't get paid in claps. And I see that cynicism and I recognize, therefore, that the people who it is for don't necessarily seem to be loving it, which makes me question it. But at the same time, I also think to myself, is it for those people or is it actually for everybody else to have a moment of saying, like, we're all here and like look at each other like for me there's this thing of like look across the street and see your neighbors and suddenly everyone comes out and like actually i've seen who neighbors are who i never seen before um and like seen the kids who get really enthusiastic about it and it's like actually there's all these children who aren't at school at the moment and are not getting to socialize and then they have this moment where they get to go out in the street and like hit some pans together and i can see there's this burst of energy that comes out for the kids so I think there are many values in it that weren't necessarily what was intended by it, um, but other things that people have found that makes it really valuable. I think the cynicism of it keeps falling into this binary thinking of it's either this or that. I'm like, yes, you can have noise on the street and a very loud demand for like a, a, a redistribution of resources. So all the social systems that will keep us alive in the case of pandemic or global warming disasters or any other thing are there when we need them. Like it doesn't have to be one or the other. I also do recognize in the era of clicktivism and like performative allyship that sometimes people think that just clapping or showing up once is enough. So I would recommend, I don't need to recommend anything to anyone, but like to have the yes and approach of improv comedy, like yes, clap and 
call your people representatives and just demand to refund our healthcare system because it's in shambles right now instead of like no meh. i do understand the anger though but i still think you can have both things in fact you yeah. need both both things there are also some there was somewhere in the states during the first or second week of the most recent black lives matter protests and uh, demonstrations there was a neighborhood that at i don't know seven wherever whenever they started making the noise they did not stop for like an hour and that was from their at home protest in support of black people and black lives matter and the movement and the demands yeah it's interesting how each of these things becomes so adaptable you know you can take the clap and you turn it from a moment of recognition into a protest and you can say we all have to be socially distanced but you know you can still organize a protest and have everyone stand in that socially distanced way and everyone wears masks and i've i think i've been really impressed with that kind of adaptability that's happened yeah take the second step like the first step is like the yay or the bleh. <laughs> at something but the second step is always like why do i feel this way and what should be different or you know like because it's very easy just to like mindlessly clap and just think that that's it or to just bark at people who are clapping and roll your eyes and both land you in the same place of inaction after the fact so i think it's uh yeah i think my my invite is to to take that second step and be like why do i feel this way and what can we do about it all right wear your masks people wash your hands a lot and well not a lot just you know 20 seconds at a time and uh keep your distance most importantly <laughs> yeah is there anything else i think that's a beautiful place to end it personally i think that was wonderful is there anything in particular that you would like to take with you i really liked how you tied this whole conversation about ritual back in with what we said in our previous episode about curiosity and i think that ultimately that is the the practice to take forward this question about doing things with people and being curious about them be intentional ask all the right questions and think about why you want to do something and process those conversations and questions with each other. I really like that as an idea that is a serious thing you can do with so many different things in life. Yeah. What about you? What are you taking away? I think this was a really good exercise on looking at big needs and what we do to fill or, or address those needs and the risks associated with that like those mm. three things like what you mentioned uh, doing your close reading of, of this book being like red flag this is not mentioning cults this is not mentioning rock stars and you were talking about that with me but just that that kept coming up I think this exercise left me like wanting to really take with me remember that there's like the need the solution but also that moment of like let's analyze the solution because when the need is so great the solution is or the solutions are potential sites for abuse and misuse so people with wrong interests will go hmm a site where i can yeah do my atrocities i don't know it was it's a good reminder of that while at the same time meaning that doesn't mean that because those people are there that you should just abandon the mission and just become a cynical pos <laughs> but like uh yeah i don't know it's 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 that it's just fostering curiosity fostering some critical thinking 
and also just indulging in the small things because yeah if we ever want to make a change we just need to be alive first so yeah that's that's that cool so let's wrap it up uh this has been another episode of the intersection of things if people want to find all of the footnotes where can they find them ruth on the intersection of things.com if they want to tweet at us or just follow us on twitter they can do so at things intersect cool the music of this podcast is by david mark hucklesby editing and writing of the episode and all of this recording is by us Ruth, if you want to be found, where do you want people to go? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Nessient, which is N-E-S-I-E-N-T. And what about you, Marinella? Just tweet me at Things Intersect. That's good. <laughs> For now. Uh, is there anything else? I think let's say goodbye. All right. Well, take good care of you people. And until the next time. Next time. Bye. Bye.